All right. Welcome back. We're at, uh, I think, episode three of Avoid Crisis podcast with uh, Alan Plyler and myself, Ray Adriano. Um, gosh, it seems like so much keeps happening so fast. <laughs> we, we could do this multiple times per week. Yeah, really. I mean, uh, I I don't know about you, but uh, I, I am absolutely consumed at how many things I'm seeing. It's it's almost like a whirlwind. Um, there's so much information, so many things, and you know, in the whole theme of void crisis, looking at this and saying, can we put some things together, kind of see a theme, talk about what kind of risk may be there, maybe what actions might be important to think about now, maybe do to help to avoid a crisis, because it just seems like we're either heading towards something, we're already in it, don't know it, or maybe it's to come, you know, it's developing, and we're not sure just exactly what it is, but, you know, and we can start, we talked about a number of different things, we can start almost anywhere, but it just, you know, every day, it seems like there's something else, and it's like, we talked a little bit earlier and said, hey, here's some things we could talk about in the show today. Uh, I'm going to let you start because, I mean, this is ping pong. I mean, right, verbal right. ping well, pong let's, going let's, back let's to I've got, a, I've got a good entry point. Um, uh, hold on. I need to pause our recording for one second. Give me just a second here. Um, but, Alan, in that intro, you, you, you made an interesting point, and I think it's worth a pause to give some context. Because the concept that we're going to be driving at in a number of episodes, and it's not just related to banking, it's not just related to business or corporate finance or finance in general, it's avoid crisis has so many other facets to it. Um, and we are going to delve into those in future episodes, but this banking thing and the financial thing seems to be the, you know, the, uh, the, the topic of the day. <clears throat> but one of the, concepts i think that you threw out there that's really important and i want to make sure that our listeners kind of key in on here is that yeah we are in the middle of it and it's and it's really hard to separate like what's good information from bad information at any moment in time whenever you're dealing with something and you are trying to essentially avoid a crisis you know avoid a disaster and <clears throat> We find ourselves in the middle of this now. If you go into the future and you look back, you're going to go, oh, yeah, look at all these signs that were there. Look at all this information in their 10Ks and 10Qs and, you know, and reports and whatever. And if you go look at the, the short sellers and the options trading and so on, you, could, you, can, start, you can start to piece things together. But any, at any given moment in time, there's such a tidal wave of information now, particularly with the internet, good and bad information, that it's really difficult to be able to focus in and to see macro issues and to be able to avoid crises. So, you know, we're handling these topics real time, but I, I and I think that's super important because that's life, that's real life. Um, but uh, uh, to be able to make that context that this is real world, real time versus we're going to take a very narrow, singular topic. We're going to look back historically and we're going to say, well, why didn't everybody see this? <laughs> you know, it doesn't work that way. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be even more careful now on what I'll call the information that you're receiving and how you interpret that. Because you may not know who's writing it and why and what their agenda is. And one of the things that we've talked about, I think we talked about this uh, in one of their early episodes, was we were talking about this whole path of when you're in the middle of something where you get this sense of this is a disaster, potentially, right? And then all of a sudden you have a whole group of people coming out and saying, no, it's not a disaster. Uh, this is an isolated event. You should really just look at it as an isolated event. And we have talked about, for instance, this uh, coming in a sense of threes, right? First saw FTX, then we saw the uh, SBB and Signature Bank. I mean, just one, two, three, but in a relatively short time period. And one of the things we were talking about in an earlier podcast was that you know, these have tentacles. They go deep. It's not just California. We talked about it before. We said, you know, it's going to be the U.S. It's going to be banks, regional banks. It's going to be big banks. They're going to be winners and losers. And this has the, the risk of contagion around the world. And then we saw Credit Suisse. We saw the CDS, um, you know, credit default swaps go up in value. And their, you know, insurance against potential default, uh, the bonds generally from uh, the banks. But they were a precursor to a lot of trouble um, in the financial crisis. We're seeing it again, credit default swaps. We saw it with uh, Credit Suisse and, you know, very shortly after, I mean, this large institution, we talked about this early in the podcast as well, you know, a large institution been around for a long time and there was inherent risk there. Uh, the enterprise value built up uh, for quite a long time, 39 and a half years or so for SVB Bank, that brand, that reputation, you know, uh, in a very short time was eroded. Um, you know, we'll see what happens this weekend, right? I mean, there's discussion that there's things happening at Deutsche Bank. There's discussion that perhaps there might be some sale of assets for SVB. I mean, you can start anywhere. I'm just saying let's, that. Let's, let's, look, let's, let, so let, let's finish that thread that's been, that kind of started this, the SVB sale. Um, it's like they had a deal, they stopped it. Then they, then they went and did another one. It's like, you know, what, what's. What's going on there? Well, I mean, if you look at that and you just look at the history, um, what happened is FDIC comes in and mm -hmm. the very first question is, okay, what are they supposed to do? Well, they're supposed to make sure that the depositors, you know, find out the depositors have 250,000 or less, right? Make them mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. And then it went from that to say, wait a minute. What about all the other depositors? I mean, what would end up happening if uh, those depositors were at risk with their deposits? And so then all of a sudden we had, you know, additional efforts that went around trying to say, okay, the depositors are going to be okay there. And then we were told that, um, you know, from the U.S. government, Biden saying that, you know, these deposits are going to be safe. Was mm -hmm. it a guarantee or is it just, you know, uh, can we really count on it? I mean, if we were to go and look at all of the banks out there and say, what is the risk? I mean, what we were talking about before is 
if it happens here and it happens that quickly, especially in today's world where we can transfer electronically, and we saw that uh, some people were getting ahead of others in that whole process, at least with the uh, SVB, right? Um, but we talked about, you know, if you move your money around to different places and you keep it under 250000 well, you know, you're going to be theoretically protected by the FDIC. But there's a, a question of, you know, the backstop. At what point do they not have money themselves? You know, because if you think about it, you know, where is all the money and where, you know, it, you know, you have it in a, in a, in a digital form that says, this is how much you have. And it looks really good. Right. I'm just saying if, if you have 10 million, you look at it in the bank account and you're like, okay, you know, from whatever source that is, I got 10 million, but do you really? Cause if you go to pull it out, uh, what ends up happening, you know? And so that question has been something that, a lot of people have just never really thought that much about. Now, where do I keep my money is like a really, really big question on a lot of people's minds. What I'm surprised about is how many times I've heard just like overheard conversations. You're just walking down the street and you hear somebody talking about banks. You hear them talking about, you know, I got to get my money out. And, you know, you have the whole thing about, I know we're not in a crisis now. I absolutely know we're not in a crisis, okay? We're in the middle of something, but it's not an absolute crisis. It's not the same as 2008, but we don't know what it could develop. But here's how I know. I haven't gotten a call from my mother yet saying, should I take my money out of this local bank and put it into some, you know, large I, bank? But, or, 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 under the, or under my mattress, right? Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah it, it, it's super true. I mean, and, and with the general public's getting a, big education on on the banking system it cracks me up i i was in a conversation a few days ago i can't believe how a bank if someone deposits the money that they don't have the money to give back to the people who put it in their bank account i'm like do you have any idea how banking works it's like you walk in with a lump of cash and you put it in your account and you think they just leaving that in the back in the safe waiting for people yeah. to come get it it's like that's not how it works you know they got to put the money to work trust. It's an inherent trust, but it has to be backed by something. And what is the backstop? You know, I mean, FDIC is only a portion of the backstop. I know that we talked uh, in an earlier podcast, and you're like, okay, does 250000 make sense anymore? Last time it was raised was uh, back in 2008, right? And, you know, and if you go back to trying to do inflation adjustment, you know, what should it be now? But, again, it was designed to, like, really handle the the small guy. But what about the fact that there has been – a lot more people with a lot more balances higher than that who, you know, are going to have to do something with the money if they don't want it to be an uninsured deposit. Right, right, right. And then, and then, yeah, you, it, it's a, it's a really interesting concept. We talked about it last time about raising the 250 limit. There's been talk about it since that last episode. I'll tell you, I think some, somebody's got to be listening in, even though we're just recording these on our own, mm-hmm. by the way, for the record, right. We might as well just throw this one out there. Today's, Friday, March the 24th at about 1.30 in the afternoon Pacific Daylight Time, just to time date and timestamp our recordings, because sure. by the time we get this stuff posted up, <clears throat> it, there's going to be a little bit of light here. <clears throat> um, so that's the SBB asset. Let me go back, go ahead. Let me go back no. on that, a little bit on the SBB bank um, and the Bridge Bank, and they're looking to sell those assets, right? Um, but they were expecting to sell it to another bank, and maybe we'll hear news come Monday morning about 
potential uh, investors, buyers, whatever the, whatever they're trying to do, um, you know, try to get the best value for that. But the point that we talked about before relating to, you know, what happens to the warrants that they had on these companies, they're in the innovation space. What's the intellectual property that they hold? What's that future value that can't be monetized today? Um, is someone getting a bargain? You know, we talk about winners and losers. If they did buy, are they getting a bargain? Or, you know, is it is it structured in such a way that there's going to be um, something that we'll look back and say, you know, they really should have done it that way? Because it right. seems like it's a really difficult thing for them to accomplish. And right. uh, and so when we were talking about there's got to be some repercussions. The other thing, too, is remember whenever this kind of was looked at as though there's assets there that uh, have a certain amount of risk. And do you understand that risk? And then other regional banks were looked at like, okay, do you have deposit flight risk? But then they started looking at what is your base of lending and what's the risk inherent in that? And so take, for example, uh, First Republic Bank in San Francisco, headquartered in San Francisco, that has suffered tremendously with their stock value, right? We talked mm -hmm. a little bit about that, and then we saw the the banks who came to their support. I'm not going to say rescue, but they came to support them, and they put in thirty billion. That that seems like a big number. I mean, it's a vote of confidence yep. of some sort, right? But yep. how many how many uh, other banks out there would get that kind of support? I mean, you, there's a lot of money moving around, but it's not changing the fundamental risk that's right really existing so if you move your money out of a regional bank and you put it into a big bank have you then said okay now i'm safe you still have an unsured deposit and how big do you have to be before someone comes along and goes because of this or that you're going to have to make changes in your entire business right. as an example credit suisse right i mean if you started this year and said credit suisse is going to be around at the end of the year 2023 you would have been wrong and if you'd yeah. said um credit suisse will be around um in the form that it was by the end of the first quarter you would have been wrong because we're not even at the end of march right okay so i mean it's moving so fast but go ahead just you know other thoughts no, no we, we, we we've touched on a few um and and i think the the market the the, the societies trying to understand and digest what happened at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature, two different issues, by the way, um, and then identify similar risk patterns at other banks. And I think it, while there may be some similarities, there are some important differences. And I want to throw a quick concept out there, touch on FRB, and then we're going to jump to another bank. <clears throat> You have to, everybody talks about the difference between um, correlation and causation. But I always add a third one. You don't hear this very often. I always say, is it correlation? Is it causation? Or is it coincidence? <laughs> right? Because <clears throat> it, 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 it could be any of those. It, it doesn't have to be correlated or caused. It could just be a coincidence. And so... You have to look at all these fact patterns uh, as you, as somewhat unique, having some similarities, but having unique characteristics. First Republic Bank has a big business among the venture capital and the private equity community. They have a lot of un, 
unsecured depositors, which, by the way, just quick definition of terms, an unsecured depositor is some is the amount of deposits they have, you know, checking savings, you know, demand deposit accounts that are above the FDIC insurance limit. So one of the things that the market is looking at, they're saying, hey, how much of their de- you know, demand deposit funds are above the FDIC insurance limit? How much of them are uninsured deposits? And what the theory is, is that people are going to begin moving these balances around such that they can be now be at multiple banks and stay under the FDIC limit to ensure that their total cash position is insured across you know, the banking system. Um, also in response to this, a number of banks have introduced or have expanded upon their sweep products, whereby they're automating the movement of money to other FDIC-insured banks, but making it available at the primary demand deposit account. Um, earlier, when it thing first blew up, a million, million and a half was pretty common. Just a couple of days ago, somebody announced one as high as five million. Obviously, the more banks you get, the higher you try to get that limit, 250 increments, the more complicated it gets to coordinate all this backend stuff. But thank you, technology. It does make it easier. So, you know, a million, million and a half to five million, pretty easy. But still, you got to park the money somewhere. Yeah. So just when you talk about a sweep account, can you maybe just help the uh, the listeners understand a little bit about what a sweep account does and why you would do a sweep? Sure. And uh, it was funny. I earlier had had in my head confused the old days way back when, you know, 20 years ago, the ZBA accounts, the zero balance accounts and a sweep account. And they're, they are different. So the ZBAs aren't really a thing anymore. So we'll just leave that off the discussion sweep accounts what the bank is doing is you're ha- you have a primary demand deposit account so a checking account and you're saying i want to have this account but i also want to have it fdi insured fdic insured but i need to keep more than 250,000 in it so you're going to sign up for a sweep account um, most banks call them icss um, and so Uh, integrated consolidated sweep, I believe is what it's called, something like that. Um, And so what what the bank is doing kind of for you on the back end is they have these relationships with other FDIC insured banks and they're moving the money over there. And then if you have a high and low limit, so you say, look, I never want my checking account under, you know, a hundred thousand, but I never want it over 250. So to the extent that it hits the bottom, it'll pull money from this other account that's to put it back in. And to the extent it gets over 250, it'll pour over into another one of these FDIC, FDIC insured accounts at another bank. It's all transparent to the account holder. You don't do anything. You don't necessarily see it. But in the documents, when you sign for the account, it's going to explain and describe all this out for you. Um, a lot of them, because there's a little more back end to it, there as a minimum. So you can't just go and say, hey, I have $50. I want to open a sweep account. It, it's usually uh, 100000 to get into a sweep product. And then um, because there's so much money involved, though, they will also offer uh, a percentage. So right now you can get into the mid to high three percentile. Um, course with another topic with the latest 
25 basis point increase we had this past week, you know, maybe that's getting closer to, you know, uh, I don't know, four and a half, five percent. Who knows what these sweeps yeah. are? But yeah. but anyway, that's, that's what a sweep product is. You can earn okay. some interest, so, diversify your risk. Okay. We've talked before about winners and losers. And we also talked about take the information that you see. Think about this as far as avoiding crisis and try to put all these things together and say, what maybe could that mean? So one of the things you just said was that for the bank customer who has enough money to where this has been an advantage for them to sweep in the way you're talking about these higher amounts, what they're doing potentially, um, I'll just simplify the example. Maybe they had just say 10 million and they had it all in one bank. So they only had 250,000 of insured deposit with the FDIC, right? Now, as they start to spread that out, they're actually gaining a higher amount of insured deposit compared to their uninsured deposit. Follow the math there, right? But winners and losers, who's on the other side of it? Think about the FDIC themselves who would look at this and say, if everything was to happen today and we had to pay out everything, that all insured depositors, we would pay out X. And this is before what we saw in SVP, right? So it would have been this. But now as people spread it out all over the place, what is their theoretical liability? Now it's not just 250000 on this one individual, but multiplied by how many people have been moving it around. And just think about what is, this is doing to inflate the liability side of the obligation. That right, the FDIC exactly. has. And so ultimately, who has that obligation? The FDIC is a government entity, uh, private enterprise, uh, publicly traded. <laughs> no, not publicly <laughs> traded. It's, it's a quasi government entity, right? It's, uh, it's, uh, uh, it, it, it gets its funding not through from taxpayers, it gets its funding from participatory banks in paying fees. They pay like insurance premiums, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's this group insurance for the whole industry. So, you know, it is not a taxpayer bailout when the FDIC steps in. But as we all know, in a capitalist economy, if you have extra expenses and you still want to maintain a profit, then you have to charge more for your services. So the banks are going to build this into the fees that they charge. That's all. Right. Um, And you're right. I think part, Go ahead. Part of the, the the theory, though, about moving the money around is that we're not we're not going to have runs on multiple banks at the same time. I think if people move their money around, the what you're gaining from that is that if a single bank fails or has difficulty, then you have stability because at least you have another chunk of money somewhere else. Um, And as an example, in a number of our clients and on a couple of boards that I sit on over the last couple of weeks, we've had discussions about this very topic. And essentially what you you arrive at is, look, you have to spread the risk around. Today, not if you have over the FDIC limit, you're a fool. You should, you got to spread it around. But so you have to minimize the risk. At the same time, though, you can't do it to such an extent that it makes your operations, you know, unmanageable. You, you know, you got 20 accounts right. to reconcile, you got stuff moving in and out. You have to have some order to it, how you're going to do it and make it make it make sense. Right. So you have to do it 
in a way that's operationally efficient. And then at the same time, you do want to try to either minimize costs or even on the positive side, maximize your return. So if there's going to be some kind of interest paid on a sweet product, go for that. So minimize risk, manage operationals, operations, and maximize your return. And then now go for it and go open up a couple bank accounts and integrate it with all your accounting apps and software and your payment apps and payroll and all this other stuff. And and there you go. That That's what you got to do today. And then if there's a run on a given bank, all you got to do is go into all your apps. You switch over. Where's where's payroll going to draw from this week? Oh, not that bank. They're having problems. We're going to go from this other bank that's already set up. It's already funded. It's already it's set to go. So I want to go back to your mention on um, the most recent interest rate decision. 25 bips moving up, right? Mm-hmm. We talked in the prior podcast about this, and we said there's three scenarios, right? Could go up. Could stay the same. It's pause could actually have a cut what we saw is the quarter point previously the market was anticipating up to a 50 bips increase um, ecu came out with 50 bips and they're fighting inflation uh, that's why they said they had to do that um, the u.s being in the same spot they felt like they needed to raise and you would think that that would make things a little bit better for banks you know, because now they have potentially a better margin, right? And maybe the demand for loans is going down potentially. Um, so, you know, they're going to make up a little bit from their spread because rates are a little bit higher. But when you look at First Republic and you think about, you know, if they have a lot of exposure to real estate, maybe this is commercial real estate, maybe it's uh, you know, mortgages that are in the uh, Bay Area. If you think about that, when the rates go up, the purchasing power that an individual has, for instance, of buying a residence, uh, may go down and may be harder for them to buy. And so then, you know, these values that they have in the mortgages, right? Um, you know, that's the collateral for their loans. I mean, I think there's a whole other part of this that uh, is what people are concerned about. But I think another thing, too, is if you look at this from the way the market has reacted, and equity holders have risk, right? And the stock has, for uh, First Republic, has come down tremendously, but it's been very volatile, right? I mean, in the last, uh, you know, several weeks, it's been up and down. It seems to now be settled a little bit more towards the bottom, but we don't know, right? Um, and what you have is you still have, in even in these regional banks, the opportunity for individuals or institutions as far as that goes to come in and to short the stock meaning they sell the stock first and they have to buy it later mm-hmm. if that is the entry point today you would have possibly been shorting the stock at somewhere between twelve dollars and twelve dollars and 29 cents let's say mm-hmm. that's the maximum gain that you can get um, if you're to short the stocks now mm-hmm. one of the things to remember is in the financial crisis, they were so concerned about how the values of these uh, these banks were going down. I mean, even to the point of getting to the tangible book value, maybe even less. Um, they came out and said, you can't short the bank stocks. Um, and uh, what would end up happening if somehow 
someone got the idea that uh, you could not short the regional banks, as an example. So you could take a short position. It doesn't mean that if you were short that you... Uh, it just would mean that you couldn't actually expand your short position. So no new shorts, right? Um, that would probably put in potentially a bottom. But if you were short the stock, you would at some point need to buy those shares back as long as they were still in business, right? Yep. Um, and as low as this uh, stake, again, First Republic Bank is, I mean, is there any risk if someone was shorting these stocks that, you know, there could be what they call maybe a short squeeze or anything like that. I mean, what's your thought on that? Uh, it, it It's hitting numbers that I don't quite get it. Um, my understanding, well, this is a data point. I believe today in intra-trading, intraday trading, that FRC, which is the ticker symbol for First Republic Bank, hit a new low. Right. So, yeah, to your point of volatility, it, we, we, it, it, ain't, it ain't out of the woods yet. Um, my understanding is that it's gotten to a point where the market cap is below the, the assets on the balance sheet. And we're talking about, you know, current assets on the balance sheet, not the, not the long-term stuff, and, you know, that might be underwater, stuff like that. So clearly there's some psychology going on here. Um, there may be timing issues. I think that there may be people speculating that because they FRB focuses on a lot of high net worth people, uninsured depositors, right? They, their number was a little higher than was higher than industry averages. That they're thinking that a lot of this money is going to leave the bank and go elsewhere. Um, on the other side, though. You know, First Republic customers tend to be very loyal, and you hear repeatedly. You don't hear this with many banks, but you hear repeatedly how people, how the customers love First Republic. And so, you know, there's a something's going to give here. Now, which one is it? You know, we're going to end up in a short squeeze. Um, I think at some point we are. I think, I think people are letting this thing crater and bottom out, and then and then at some point. It's going to be a glom on, and I think this thing's going to going to pop up. It's not going to go through the you know stratosphere or anything. I think it'll pop up pretty quickly to say about forty, and then how it gets from forty to eighty is going to be you know interesting. Remember, all along the way here, we're next week is the end of the month, end of first quarter, so we're going to start getting some some numbers out within a month of today. And yeah. that's going to change a lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean, the March 31st is the close of the quarter, but it's also when um, the short report gets calculated, meaning like how many shares are short. And not too long after that, that news will come out and people will be able to take a look at it and say, well, if there's that many people short and the float is this, and they do calculations right that. But here's, here's the thing that I was saying too. I mean, let's just call it the low right now, and let's just call it somewhere around 12. You have $12 in the downside if you're 100% right, and you know this is the end of this uh, particular institution from a stock standpoint. You have 12 points. Okay, what's the limit on the other side? There's no limit. Okay, right. now here's, right. here's the other thing. Here's the other thing. You may, you just may, 
get a chance to have something happen that we never thought could happen. As I just said, if you're short on this, you can only short it to zero. But I'm going to remind you that we didn't think that interest rates could go below zero, and they did. So could this be the first stock that we've ever seen to be able to trade below, below zero? <laughs> I, I just don't know. Yeah, that, 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 that's kind of mind-boggling. Um, let, let, let's, uh, I, unless there's anything else on First Republic to, to, to talk about. No. I, let's, I, let's finish up our final bank on the list, I think, to talk about this week. Um, Deutsche Bank. Yeah. Okay. Because we hit on Credit, credit Suisse a little earlier. Yeah, yeah, that's kind yeah. of a known thing, kind of keep, keep moving along. Deutsche Bank. What the heck? Yeah. You know, it, let's go back to the shorts. Um, it, when... When the trade is in play, then there's a lot of people researching and they're trying to find who's the next vulnerable yeah. um, in that category. So the category is banks, and this category seems to be large European banks. And so you had Credit Suisse, and uh, you know it's kind of hard to go after UBS right now, right? But you got right. Bangle Center and then a couple of others out there that are, you know, Big banks, but they're on the list. So you can find a reason to be worried. Is it real? I mean, but, you know, we don't know. We don't know if there's something that somebody knows and sees and says, okay, there's a real reason. We'll find that out. But it is a part of saying what we were talking about before. It starts, you know, somewhere and it starts to spread because we're so interconnected on a global basis, Right. Do you trace it back to one of the three that we talked about? FTX, you know, SVB, Signature? I mean, did, did something go from there? Or is it just that there's a higher awareness? Or is it also related somehow to the uncertainty that we're seeing? And I'll even point to uh, to Paris on this. You know, the pensioners, the reforms that they're talking about with Macron. I mean, that creates instability. I mean, the other thing that's happening here um, is that the people are, and when I talk about the people, the people of any government really need to be able to believe and rely on their government. Things like social services, et cetera, um, and your retirement plan. I mean, right now in the U.S., if all of a sudden you said, okay, for Social Security, now the retirement age is 80, and there'd be a reaction. I think there's going to be a reaction at 75, at 70. Now, the thing is, is that somebody gets an idea, they put it in, and going back to the 0% interest rates, right, the negative interest rates, did that only show up in one place, or did all of a sudden it end up uh, in a number of different places? And eventually this got unwound, and it was looked at as temporary. These aren't temporary changes that are being proposed. And there's this impact to our faith in the government. And we're having a question here in the faith of our banks but if you extend that that question of faith, that question of faith goes to the government level as well. Are we going to have backstops for all deposits in America? Say yes, please. Yes. Okay. Well, please. I don't think you have the authority to do that, but I, okay, <laughs> I'll go. With that. You're making me feel better. So, <laughs> uh, we we actually we can talk about that in a minute about Powell. Um, you talked about short squeeze earlier, and it kind of gets into in a way, some of the meme stock stuff and kind of playing in this financial sp space. Uh, we had a lot of movement on Square the last yeah, couple of yeah. days. And, yeah. and, you know, Hindenburg Report, et cetera. Yeah. Um, the short sellers are, are mm -hmm. glomming on and, you know, it's like, so 
what, what's your what's your what's your take what's your take on that? I I I don't I don't know of any fundamental reason why Square should be getting hit like this. I think that you know my understanding of their business and what I've read and seen and is that they're really strong. They're one of the one of the top you know payment platforms for small businesses uh, and 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 e-commerce. Um, you know, do you know what, what's your take on what uh, happened with Hindenburg and Square? Well, uh, well, first of all, um, if you read the Hindenburg report and you start looking at some of those things, um, you're going to be surprised at what they're saying. And you have to put it into context of, you know, no one, no one sends Christmas cards to the, um, to the short sellers. And no one says happy new year to the short sellers and India and we can go into that. And a lot of people don't really know that much about how Hindenburg had an impact with somebody who was a billionaire in India and the ultimate result of the decrease in value of their wealth through that. I mean, um, the main individual, Jack Dorsey, uh, took a half a billion hit just in the market moves as a result of this report coming up. I actually have some things where they're, they're talking about. Um, the big thing that they talk about is about cash out. And uh, Square went through a lot of different um, changes, including its name change to Block. So it's really about Block. And the Hindenburg report is extensive. And what it showed um, in their commentary, because I'm just going to call it commentary. So more to be seen about who's going to say that that's correct or not correct. But when they put it together, they put it together in such a way that it's point after point after point. And it's really... When you look at it, you say, okay, you have to defend on all these. You have to go point by point in reaction to it. And if you try to go point by point, you get into a very long explanation on some of these things. Let me just give you uh, an example. I'm going to read from specific portions of the uh, the Hindenburg report right now. They're going to talk about Cash App. So Cash App is really where you're able to transfer money from one person to another. And by the way, I... I really looked a little bit into this and I saw that even in their advertisements, they were saying, you know, about what cash app did. They talked about how your deposits were insured and they talked about FDIC insurance. And I'm like, wait a minute, haven't I heard of this FDIC guy before? Um, but here, uh, I'll read you a couple things. A cash app was also cited by far. And they put that in quotes. As the top app used in reported U.S. sex trafficking, according to lead nonprofit organization, multiple Department of Justice complaints outline how Cash App has been used to facilitate sex trafficking, including sex trafficking of minors. Okay, so you're going to have to deal with, you know, responding to that. There's even, this is another one here, there's even a gang named after Cash App. In 2021, Baltimore authorities charged members of the Cash App gang with distribution of fentanyl in a West Baltimore neighborhood, according to news reports and criminal records. And they go into more detail about, for instance, rappers referring to Cash App. They go into, you know, potentially um, other issues. But a big part of this is this next section I'm going to talk about. So another bullet point. They do this bullet point by bullet point. So just imagine, boom, boom, boom. And you have to go back and you have to come up with your story, which, by the way, they've already responded and saying, you know, this is just another short seller out there trying to make money on the downside of our stock. 
But here, let me go to another point that they said. Beyond facilitating payments for criminal activity, the platform has been overrun with scam accounts and fake users, according to numerous interviews with former employees. Examples of obvious distortions, this is the next bullet point, examples of obvious distortions about Jack Dorsey has multiple fake accounts, including some that appear aimed at scamming cash app users. Elon Musk and Donald Trump have dozens. Next bullet point. To test this, we turned our accounts into Donald Trump and Elon Musk, and we're easily able to send and receive money. We ordered a cash card under our obviously fake Donald Trump account. Check and see if Cash App's compliance would take issue. Dash, the card promptly arrived in the mail. I mean, there's a lot more. I mean, we could spend a lot of time just talking about this. But, you know, the the thing to remember about this is that, you know, when you have somebody who goes and spends as much time as as um, as the authors of this particular report have spent talking to former employees and detailing in the way that they do. I mean, they have graphics and they have pictures and they're showing how um, one user could have had multiple accounts. Um, and so you just think about it and, and where this ties in goes back to the SEC. I'm going to tell you about this part too. There's a whole set of allegations that are about the metrics that were used, non-GAAP metrics, how more and more the non-GAAP metrics metrics were supporting the growth. The company had stock that uh, moved up quite a bit. Obviously you have insiders selling under whatever plans are selling at those times. But they're also talking about their growth and what they're saying in this report is that that growth was relying on um, accounts that were fake now where did we hear about fake accounts before um and that having a question of value was a company called twitter i mean i i think that i think that's what it was um and how does the tie-in come in here i mean this block ceo and square ceo and Twitter CEO, Jack Dorsey, um, fake accounts um, in Twitter was one accusation. We've got another accusation of fake accounts here. This is a public company. Twitter was public before going private through the sale. Um, there's just a lot of different things in here. And the, the take of this is that it's not going to be that easily dismissed. But I'll add something else to this. Block also was really involved in looking at the advancement of crypto. And what we've heard just even today from the SEC was a warning. And the warning says this, stay away from crypto. Now, whether the SEC is right or not, I mean, it's, it also brings up another um, you know, big question. And we didn't even, I don't think we even had this on our list about um, the Wells notice. The Coinbase got. It looks like this is going to go to you know potentially the courts, where the SEC informed them through the Wells uh, notice that uh, there's potential enforcement action, and uh, well, Coinbase is ready to sue the SEC over that. So um, that's going to potentially put a lot of this issue of, you know, what is a security? What's an unregistered security? It's going to put it in the hands of the court. 
And, uh, you know, you go back about a lot of this with crypto and you just think, you know, what happened with FTX? You know, there's involvement with crypto there. There's, you know, this debate going back and forth. And then what do you do with your money right now? Um, you know, some people might think, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to take my uninsured deposit. I'm going to invest in something else, right? What should that something else be? Not not crypto. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. <laughs> well, I mean, you want to avoid a crisis. I'm just saying that yeah. there's so much that's going around, yeah. right? And, and you think about, okay, I'm going to avoid one risk. And by doing that, you have to say, what's the acceptable risk I'm going to have? Right. right. I right. mean, and the same thing we're talking about avoiding prices. If you take all of your um, marginable, <laughs> marginable balances in a trading account, and you're allowed to short, as an example, and you decide you're going to short the regional banks or the regional short uh, bank index, and then there's a squeeze, um, you're going to have to more than likely come up with some money. If you don't have cash on the side, um, you don't have those uh, deposits you can rely on, then maybe you're going to have to get a loan from the bank, and they're going to charge you an interest rate that's aligned with the interest rates that they're moving now. So, I mean, this is how you end up in a crisis if you're not thinking through all these different things. And yep, yep, yep. Um, yeah, to uh, a, a couple of points to, to clarify here on, on this, just for the listeners, um, a Wells notice is a type of notice issued by the Securities and Exchange Commission um, uh, about enforcement action. Um, a Wells notice has nothing to do with Wells Fargo Bank, just to kind of put that out there. Um, and yeah, so SEC is crawling all over Coinbase, you know, um, and and uh, I think it's safe to say in the avoid in the concept of avoid crisis that if you're going to put some money into crypto, that it should be pure gambling money, money that if you lost all of it, it would not affect your life or lifestyle. Um, if you hit a big upside, good for you, you know, bonus. And if you lost all of it, it's not going to bother you very much. It's like, uh, you know, I, I lost 20 bucks or whatever. So that's a quick thing on on the on the on my opinion on the crypto side and avoid crisis yep. and 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 what's going on there um yeah, i want to the, jump in i want to jump into something else that we, we talked sure. about which is this mm-hmm. uh and i'm sure you've got a lot of things to talk about too and i don't want to cut you off from it but i i know that this kind of goes along the lines that we've had in the discussions before about rates and talking about the raising of the rates for inflation and i want to talk about this this issue that we have with inflation around the world because i was trying to figure out just by looking at the news and looking at the facts and saying why was the you know ecu coming out with their raise of 50 basis points and where would it potentially stop so here's some interesting things about inflation around the world right now in the united kingdom it's estimated to be at a rate of 10.4 percent and that was a rise um, from 10.1%. In the United States right now, it's estimated that the inflation rate is around 6%, which happens to be the eighth lowest in the world. Now, I'm gonna ask you what you think 
the estimated inflation rate is in China. Okay, what do you think? I have no idea, but they're going through all kinds of stuff. Yeah. The COVID increases, the air bubble going through. They had a real estate crash, um, mm-hmm. but they've got they've got they got other problems. They've probably been pumping support into the system somehow. I'm just going to pick a round number and I'm going to say 10, 10%. Okay. All good arguments for why it could be higher, but it's being estimated by the same group of people with the numbers I'm quoting here at 1%. Okay. One. Yeah. But here's the thing, right? It maybe they're in a slowdown in a lot bigger way than we think. And maybe, you know, this, uh, interest rate rise is going to slow things down, but inflation around the world is happening. Even at 1%, there's no reason why it could all of a sudden jump in China. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm going to throw out another country. Okay. Argentina. What do you think that is? Oh boy. Oh gosh. I was just looking at this. There's a, there's a, there's a South American country that's dealing with hyperinflation right now. I don't know who it is, but I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to play this game here. Um, I'm, I want to play the game version of the game, not the, you know, and that is that uh, you wouldn't ask me unless it, was a, unless it was an outlier. And I, if I remember correctly, the country that I had uh, 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 read this on, I thought they were like, 70 80 percent annualized inflation rate so i'm going to say 75 percent. you're getting close in argentina right now it's estimated at 102.5 percent yeah <laughs> how do you deal with that i mean maybe we'll maybe we'll be able to like uh talk to some people in argentina and ask them how they deal with it i mean it's it's a crazy i've seen articles where they talk about it um and here's the thing about avoiding a crisis, too. If we look at the fact that it can go like that in different areas and country, we can have this very disproportionate, you know, 100% in one country and 1% in another. Or just, you know, take the average between the United Kingdom and the United States, just say, you know, 10.46, make it 8. Just say globally, if we're in like an 8% inflation risk environment, what do you do? I mean, what do you do to fight inflation and avoid a crisis? Well, I mean, the tools that we presently have and the economic theory that we have, it's, you know, the, the, the seesaw, the teeter-totter of the rate, uh, the interest rate versus unemployment. So you got to raise interest rates. You got to swallow your medicine, raise interest rates. That puts uh, uh, friction, downward pressure on demand. And as demand goes down, uh, then so should prices, right? In the in the supply and demand uh, mm-hmm. traditional uh, economics, um, so you raise rates. So what do you do with higher inflation? You got you got to raise rates, interest rates, and you have to swallow the pill of some increased unemployment. You know we're actually at pretty high uh, employment rate. I, I would venture to call it full employment. We are at full employment. Um, so, you know, we haven't, we, we've experienced the pain of inflation. Uh, we're going to have a new pain that's going to start coming up. And you're seeing it already. Look in the last two weeks, the number of companies that have announced layoffs. Uh, those layoffs are real. And, and as each company announces, 
the next guy is going to go just like a run on the bank. They're going to go, well, heck, I don't want to be the last one to tighten my belt, you know, and, 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 and uh, tighten my seatbelt and manage for this turbulent ride that we have in the economy coming up. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to hunker down as well. All right, we're going to do some layoffs. And so it's going to tip some people to a decision that they might have been kind of on the fence and just pushing and waiting and pushing and waiting and see what the tea leaves say. And all of a sudden they're like, uh, okay, dude, we got to do it. C-suite discussions. We got to do it. And then, and then that's just, again, it's like a run on the bank. It's just a snowball. One begets the other and here you go. Now you got, now you have a recession. I, I can't believe how quickly an hour passes when we get into these topics. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it feels like we haven't really even started to like really dive in. Um, oh, I know. We we didn't yeah. we didn't harsh on Powell yet. We we were talking yeah. really about we got to talk yeah, about regional gonna, banks, big banks. Oh, oh, but, we we got a lot to talk about. Uh, let's do a quick recap, okay? Okay. I mean, just the, some of the things we talked about today, right? And, and all in the spirit of avoiding the crisis. One, I think a, a point was that there's so many things happening, um, and the risks are becoming more and more elevated in observations and understandings and we still don't know as much as we'd like to know two that the change and the pace of the change of events that have impact is really observable and we're going to know even next week before our next podcast about some new information on what happened with the bank sale on the bridge bank with the you know spb we're going to find out something even if it's that nothing happened or that something happened. And we'll have a lot to talk about there. We're still in the window of raising rates, although the market thinks that 25 uh, was a move in the right direction. Maybe they think it's going to be a pause next. We still have a lot to debate because it's a moving target. And there is inflation going on around the world. And at least looking at the way that rates have been coming up compared to the global rate, we're not there to where we're you know, fully able to say that the rates are high enough to reduce the inflation spiral. Um, all these things have to be kind of put into the view of, okay, that's what we're seeing and observing. Think through it. What do we have to do to avoid crisis? There's probably some other ones that I've missed here. Maybe you can add to them with any other thoughts, but um, I think that's a good recap of some of the things we talked about today. I would um, just highlight on your first couple of points about information and going back to, we made this comment earlier is, um, you know, information age, the internet, you know, Google knows everything, you know, whatever, you can Google anything and, and, and get some information pretty quickly. Um, yes, we have access to more information, more financial reporting, more SEC reports, you know, uh, all kinds of stuff, you know, good factual information, but there's also a bunch of crap out there. There's a bunch of, you know, bad information, wrong information. Some of it unintentional, some of it intentional. And so again, getting back to you're in the middle of all this storm and what's going on. How do you separate the good from the bad? You, you gotta be really careful. You gotta, uh, uh, rely upon you can get the a, a thread of a story you know a hint a sniff of a story but you got to go back to reliable sources okay at the end of the day trace that story back 
use more than one source, use sources that are both conservative and liberal, that are both, you know, blue and red or whatever, you know, however you want to slice and dice it um, to get good information. Because I'll tell you, one of the fastest ways you'll find yourself in a crisis is relying on a single source of information or bad information. So, you know, I want to throw that out there as we uh, kind of wrap this up is that um, be super careful about your information sources in your research. Um, Do your own research and think for yourself at the end of the day. All right. Well, it was great again. Just uh, being able to talk about it. I've got so much to think about, but again, boy, it really goes fast. Sounds great, Alan. Thanks again for another great uh, episode. Um, And uh, we'll see everybody, uh, see everybody next time. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.